0: Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23 as we kind of see the finish line of our study of uh, 2 Kings. I'm convinced that the greatest spiritual challenges that you and I face are not the outside attacks of those in our culture who might mock or undermine. Our faith in God or God's Word, I'm convinced that our greatest spiritual challenges are the internal distractions that we have that would take our eyes off of our maybe good intentions spiritually. When I see a a room of people who have uh, gathered to worship on a Sunday morning, I know that we are filled with good intentions. Uh, The Lord is important to you. Uh, You're probably a believer in Christ, and you want to honor him with your life. And uh, the thing we have to be so fully aware is, what could distract me spiritually? There's so many things. Busyness and stress is all it takes sometimes, and our good intentions of, we want to follow the Lord, and then we're so focused on everything that we got going. Sometimes it's trials that overwhelm us, that would distract us. Sometimes it's blessings that we might take credit for that would distract us. Sometimes it is, of course, our weakness of sin in this area or that. But there are so many things that will keep our eyes off of our intention to follow Christ and instead become self-focused. And any time we're focused on, on ourself, what I want, what I'm going through, What I have, these things will distract us from our spiritual focus. So how do we stay focused? Uh, Today in the life of Josiah, this is our second week studying Josiah, but uh, we're going to see four important principles that will help us keep our focus. The first three uh, come from positive lessons in his life. The third, unfortunately, comes from a failure in his life, a little bit of a review. Last week, we saw that King Josiah became king at age eight. Incredibly, but that's because his dad was assassinated. He was that bad of a king, and so he was anointed king at eight. And uh, eventually, after other people will have administered the kingdom, uh, took his place on the throne, probably around age sixteen. Because we find the very important information in Second Chronicles that at age sixteen, it said he began to seek the Lord. What a critical, important time to realize as a teenager that he could begin pursuing God, and that became his goal. Then, jump 10 more years, we saw that when he was 26 years old, he began the amazing restoration of the temple project because they found a copy of the book of the law. He, well, actually, they found the book of the copy of the law, and then they decided, we need to repair this place. But if if Josiah was already spiritually focused on God at 16, 10 years later, when he found the book of the law, and now he was reading the book of law, because incredibly, it had been maybe 50, 60 years since anybody had a copy of God's word. Hard for us to imagine. But somehow they kept going through the motions of religion, and uh, yet... Josiah, in his young, sincere heart, was pursuing God already without the Scripture. And once he had the Scripture, he said, I've got to make sure that my people also know the Word of God. So that's where we come in the first three verses of chapter 23. Then the king called together the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from least to greatest, He read, so the king is reading. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant. That's a recommitment in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. That was the intent, that they would want to make the same commitment that he had made. So you have a 26-year-old king who has just gone through this great temple restoration project, and now he is standing there in this huge convocation on the temple grounds, in a restored temple. And he is leading them in a recommitment to God's Word, first principle, recommitting yourself to god's word you might have thought that this would be like a dedication of this great project that they just did but there is no mention of the improved temple i'm sure people looked around and thought no it's sure good because we put in new timbers and new stones uh dressed stones there were some major structural repairs they surely appreciated that the walls were no longer leaning or the roof or the floors were no longer sagging but that wasn't the focus of this gathering the focus of this gathering was the fact that they were actually hearing God's word. The king read it. Probably at least the book of Deuteronomy, if not all of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books was the book of the law. Because we saw last week that when they found the book of the law, uh, the king's secretary read the whole law to him, and he says, that's what I got to do. I need to read the whole law to my people. And so he read it to the elders, those are the politicians, the people who ran the city of Jerusalem and the nation. He read it not only to the elders and the politicians, but the spiritual leaders, priests and prophets. And then it says that he read it to everybody, there was a, this was a universal gathering, this is from the least to the greatest. So now you've got all the, all the tradespeople, the bakers, the, the butchers, the candlestick makers, the, the housewives, the teenagers, the carpenters who had done the project and the carpenters' helpers and... Everybody was hearing the Word of God after some six decades when nobody had it. Hard for us to imagine with a, as accessible as our scriptures are. There were probably some who could remember that their grandpa said they heard from the Word of God when in the days of Hezekiah, but nobody had been in the Word of God. What we do week by week in this room and what our many youth leaders are doing week by week in the level below us. And what our faithful leaders and teachers are doing week by week in the adult Bible fellowships cannot be taken for granted. This is a unique privilege. And if ever on this side of the planet we were not allowed to publicly teach the word of God the way they are so many other places like North Korea, China, Iran, Afghanistan, we would realize just how precious it is to be gathering around the Word of God. Because we don't gather here for an opinion hour of me or anyone else. We don't gather around to talk about God's good suggestions. We are actually hearing from God. Direct words, principles, applications of God's Word. And so Josiah read it and then asked them, to recommit to it. They renewed the covenant. He says, it's it's great to hear the word of God, and he read it to them, but you see in verses 2 and 3, then he transitions and says, now, are we going to keep it? Are we going to follow it? Are we going to keep it? Like James said, it does no good to be a, a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. If mom or dad ask you to do something, you don't just say, I hear you, mom. Garbage. And go back to your device. No, you hear you do, and, and that's the focus. We, have, we cannot shrug it off and go away unchanged, James was saying. You know, it's like you can't look in the mirror and say, well, that's a mess, and then do nothing about it. So we will be distracted from our spiritual focus if we get used to shrugging off the Word of God. Um, we are either going to be following Satan's world in our culture, or God's word, counterculture. Remember how Satan distracted Eve and her focus spiritually. What the serpent Satan said was, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And in fact, God didn't say that, God said you can eat from all the trees except that one in the middle, and Eve, Caught the mistake, and corrected Satan, but Satan had already deviously planted the thought in her mind. you mean God is keeping me from something good? That's one of the most common lies of Satan, is that when you come into the Word of God, you, he, he's, he's written this stuff to keep us from something good, which has never been the point. But in Satan's world and culture, He's going to say, any way you want to use sex is fine. Anything that God says of a boundary is keeping you from something good. Anything you want to do with your money, it's up to you. And if God says, no, money is a stewardship that we manage, well, that's not good. If God says that, if the world says, if you have skills, leverage them, exploit them to your greatest satisfaction, and if you're in God's word, you say, no, God has given me skills and abilities and, and positions and power, maybe influence, and i want to use those to his glory. So all this, all that was read had to be now applied and committed. So it says the people pledged, you may have the word joined, entered, stood for the covenant. So they said, yes, we will do it. And so we see the principle of Josiah. That Godly leaders urge others to commit to God's word, and make not only if you see yourself as a leader, of course, if you're leading or teaching something here, you could see that. But you know the most common leadership position of all is called parenting. You never really quit being that model, if not the, 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 the on-the-job everyday parent. And so part of what Josiah will have read that day was certainly. Deuteronomy 6, about a parent's responsibility to teach God's word. These words that I command you today are to be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So, so this word of God is not an, an adult thing. This is an everybody thing. This is a family thing. Teach them to your children, and take when you, you shall talk of them when you sit on the ho- in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, it is to be just ingrained in the fabric of your mind, and thus in your conversations, that everything we do is about honoring and obeying God. We talked recently about our core values as a church, and we started with the fact that we teach God's Word as, as authoritative. It's not just a church family thing, it's a family family thing. New Testament, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's the instruction of the Lord? This is the instruction of the Lord. So as leaders, as parents, if spiritually God has put us in a position of influence, we have, you know, one job. To communicate what God's Word is saying to us. I know that many times uh, we may have grown up with good parents who made us understand authority and said this phrase, because I said so. Because I'm the dad, I'm the mom. I get it. It's authority. But I would urge any parent, if you have kids eating your food, any parent as soon, as young as possible to explain who is behind the authority you are claiming. So that you, your child will realize that this is not just about mom and dad, but mom and dad have their authority from God. So if, if you tell Johnny and Susie to eat their peas, it's because, see, God has put me in charge of you for now. And you need to eat your peas. One thing that does, as we communicate that as a parent... It, it makes us make sure that what we're communicating is actually something probably in God's will. And eating vegetables probably is God's will. <laughs> A little ice cream probably too. But this is God's will. So is it God's will what I'm asking my child to do? But secondly, it indicates that I am also under authority. When you think of this first line of Ephesians 6, do not provoke your children to anger, what, what provokes kids to anger more than hypocrisy. If, if, if you ask them to do something you're not doing, ask them to be under authority, but they know some obvious ways that you're not willing to be under the authority of God yourself, that would provoke someone to, to anger. That would be what we could call an authoritarian perspective on parenting. That is, I am in control. As opposed to authoritarian is not the same as authoritative authoritative is i have authority over you because i am under the authority of god you see authoritarians crave and demand control the authoritative parent is under the control of the holy spirit him or herself and so josiah by the way he read the scriptures and said let's us so Yes, I'm the king. I'm in charge of everything. I can do anything I want to in this kingdom, but I am under the authority of God. Therefore, he had an incredible impact communicating that authority of God's word to those in his kingdom. So they renewed the covenant. Step number one, recommit yourself to God's word. Step number two was he abolished false worship everywhere possible. And really all of verses 4 through 20, that's most of this chapter, is about him methodically going through the nation and beyond, really, to abolish idolatry. Verse 4, then the king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry host. This stuff was in the temple. He burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts, this astrological worship. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and where women did weaving for Asherah. So he's he's walking through Jerusalem and the the nearby areas of of Judah to destroy this stuff. Now there's a little chronological note. As you know, we often compare with uh, Chronicles. And we find in Chronicles... 2 Chronicles 34.3 tells us that Joshua actually began this cleansing at age 20, his 12th year, whereas this is age 26. So it seems a little bit out of order, but it fits here. And in fact, it, it, it sheds some light on the sincerity of, of Josiah's walk with God because even before he had the scripture, he knew that this idolatry had to go. There are some things you don't need the Bible to tell you. I mean, there's, there's conscience it's written in our hearts, Paul told the Romans. So even the unbelievers know plenty of thing that things that are wrong. And so how much more, sometimes, as believers, we don't actually have to find the verse. We just know, with the Holy Spirit's help, some things have to go. So he began early, and it wasn't a weekend job to get rid of idolatry throughout the land after... 50, 60 years of it everywhere. I don't think it was just a one-year thing. In fact, Second Chronicles suggests that six years later, this is like a continuation because he's going through and doing everything he can to get rid of everything possible. But it starts in the temple and moves out to a larger circle geographically. Removed from the temple perhaps it was at age 20 there when he was taking out the trash, if you will, in the temple they saw. That's why we needed to do some repairs. And then they planned the building project, the restoration. Verse five, he did away with the pagan priests. Now, some of you don't have the word pagan priests. It just says priests. But this is actually a Hebrew term that is only used for false or pagan priests. And it seems that he executed them, which is in accordance with the law of God, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 17, of those who practice the occult. He burned to things, he ground to powder, he tore down the quarters, that is where the the male prostitutes lived and the women weaving baskets for Asherah. There was unspeakable, disgusting perversions associated with this pagan worship. And so the stuff, the material stuff, had to go out of the temple, around the area, I don't know if you have stuff that you've got to get rid of that somehow becomes a temptation. I know in our digital age, we all know that Satan has a tremendous grip on the world, let alone Christians, through lust and pornography, and it's a lot harder to get rid of it when it's all digital and it's accessible to us 24-7. But like Josiah, we have to take drastic measures, whatever is necessary, because we see these things as satanic. Satanic. Ultimately every area of sin is. And every area of sin is habit forming. We, we form patterns. Uh, whether it's greed or bitterness. Anger. Drugs or alcohol. Pride itself. Anything becomes a habit. A way our mind thinks. And it'll take like you're in a rut of a, of a muddy road, it'll take drastic measures to get out of the ruts that we are in. And some of you have, have worked through that process and, and done it so well. It's so important because we cannot be casual but decisive. Well, much of the rest of this chapter is about him destroying other, and other objects and, and priests. I'll hit some highlights. Verse 8. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba. He desecrated those. Verse 10, he desecrated Topoth, which was in the valley of the Ben-Hinnan, so that no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire. They were still doing, they were still doing child sacrifice. And if they weren't still doing it under Josiah, there are still the people who somehow thought that was required from the darkness of Satan and his Demons. Uh, he removed things, verse 11, that had been dedicated to the Son. Verse 12, he pulled down the altars that the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz, uh, and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them, smashed them to pieces, threw the rubbish into the Kidron Valley. Uh, the king also, verse 13, de- desecrated the high places with, that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. This is interesting. The ones that Solomon, that's almost 400 years. Solomon, king of Israel, had built for the Ashtoreth, the vile goddess and the Sidon, of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the people of, of Ammon. Why did Sam, Solomon... Solomon, who gave us the Proverbs, Solomon, who gave us Ecclesiastes, Solomon. Why would Solomon have built these things? Remember, he married many pagan women. He did this to appease them. And he, and so, by marrying someone outside of faith in the true God, it led Solomon and the people astray. Verse fourteen: Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites. With human bones. See, when when we read frequently there about desecrating maybe the high places. The way the way to desecrate the high places it had become such a temptation for the people that you know sometimes actually people worship God in the high places like you might go to the top of a hill and enjoy God's creation, but these high places were typically a place where where the pagans would go to worship the spirits and the occult and all that stuff would happen. But he didn't bulldoze, he couldn't, he couldn't take down every high place, of course. So he wisely desecrated them, and by sprinkling human born uh, bones on them, somehow they became uh, polluted even for uh, pagan purposes. So he did everything possible to get rid of everything possible. Verse 15, now he moves on to Bethel, and we'll talk about the geography. It's getting, it's getting stretched now. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin, even that altar and on, that, on that high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole. Also, Jeroboam was that kingdom-wrecking king, uh, the one who took 10 of the tribes and, and launched, started the, the northern kingdom then called Israel that we've traced in our study of second kings. And, and there was an altar at Bethel. And the reason Jeroboam had established that altar at Bethel was because he said, I, now that I've got my own kingdom, I don't want people going back down to Jerusalem and Judah to worship. So remember he built two golden calves, one on the north side of his kingdom, and one on the south side, which is Bethel, right on the border between Judah and, uh, and Israel. And so, so that had to be destroyed. So he, he's going, going further with it, verse 17, or 16. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned on that altar, see that? To defile it, in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. And that launches a story that actually... Rewinds us to 1 Kings 13, we'll see in a minute. And the king asked, What is this tombst- that tombstone I see? And the men of the city said, It marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. There's a tomb of a prophet. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anybody disturb his bones. So they spared his bones, and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. Now that's a kind of a—it's a fascinating and rather complex story told in a long chapter, if you remember from seven years ago. I'm sure you do. Uh, but go back to First Corinthians, or rather First Kings thirteen, sometime. But here's essentially the amazing part about this, because 300 plus years before, it was actually prophesied that Josiah would do this by the word of the Lord. A man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering that's the king of that time by the word of the Lord he cried out against the altar 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 this is what the Lord says a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David and on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you so 300 years before God actually said it's going to be a king named uh, Josiah. And, of course, that exactly is what happened. And, you know, it's, it's why we can live with confidence to know that God actually fully plans and controls history. We're living in a little slice of history. And we think we have so much control, or we think that, that, that oh, no, we, we worry about so much when God fully knows what he's doing in history next Josiah goes further into northern tribal areas Um, he started in Bethel but now verse 19 says just as he had done at Bethel Josiah removed and defiled all the shrines at the high places that the kings of Israel when you see the word Israel that means the northern ten tribes had built in the towns of Samaria Samaria was the capital of Israel That had provoked the Lord to anger. And Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. This was an amazing undertaking. And he goes in increasing directions. Let me just show you a little bit. So there's Israel. There's Judah. We looked at through the past number of months. Jerusalem, capital of Judah. That's, That's the kingdom that's still staying, right? It had been 100 years previously that God had allowed the Assyrians to take the Israelites, the northern kingdom, and decimated it. But now he, he, he takes care of that altar in Bethel that Jeroboam set up and the ones in Samaria, but this Chronicles fills in, in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. And so he was very thorough and even venturing into territory that he didn't control. This, this, this northern part was under the control for 100 years of, of Assyria and uh, It's a faraway outpost of of Assyria, and actually Assyria's power was declining, and, and yet they had control of it, so it became kind of a no man's land, but yet there were still Jewish people living there, and Josiah says, for the sake of all the people of Israel, I have to remove as much temptation as possible. Godly leaders commit to the Word of God, and then they do everything possible to root out evil. For God's sake, but also for the sake of the people they know and they love. Young people, you have to know that you won't always agree with your parents' limits, limits that they give you, what you can do, where you can go, what you can watch. But you got to know they're doing everything possible to limit, to reduce, to abolish some of the temptations that they may be able to help you with. And adults when we no longer have those parents to limit us, right? We have the Holy Spirit. And so we have to learn to create our own boundaries, our own limits. Biggest, one of the biggest areas today is, of course, uh, the accessibility to all kinds of information. If we're going to stay focused spiritually, we have to control our devices or else our devices will control us. And it's not all bad stuff. There's plenty of bad stuff. But it's just distracting us from the intention that we had to follow the Lord. Well, after going through both his nation and the surrounding areas of Israel to abolish all that he could, now the nation's ready to worship. And so he abolishes false worship because now he wanted to reintroduce True worship. So they're going to celebrate the Passover. Kind of the, kind of the, the cream of the, of the three major feasts of Israel. The king, verse 21, gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it's written in the book of the covenant. I mean, we just read this, right? So they, they went through the, the Passover instructions and said, we've not been doing that. Let's do it. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, age 26, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. If you're with us just a couple of weeks ago, you might say, didn't we just do this? That was Hezekiah. That was his, his uh, great-grandfather. And though it was a few weeks ago for us, that was 100 years ago for them. And so there was a huge Passover celebration in the time of godly Hezekiah, but that had become a distant memory. We aren't following much of what was being done hundred years ago in our heritage, right? And so it had been neglected and it dwindled down to nothing and nobody was doing it anymore. And without the word of God, you could see why. Because any good spiritual intention we have fades really fast. Why do you think God designed that we'd come together for worship on a weekly basis? Because it fades really fast. And some of the things that God might speak to us about when we're in this room together and you're with uh, some others fellowshipping in the group or whatever, it, it fades so fast because we are so surrounded and inundated with everything else in Satan's world that what we really intend to do by God's word just kind of diminishes. And, and obviously worship is one of those But you cannot worship until you deal with sin. So they dealt with the sin without the temptation. They recommitted themselves to the word of God, and then they could begin to worship freely and and regather and and do what they intended to do because sin will keep you from joyful worship. Dealing with sin and recommitting to the word of God gives you a thirst for regular worship. I know there's many reasons why uh, sometimes people cannot be uh, together in worship but it is a concern that, that we can't help but have sometimes when, when we see people who once were regular at worship or excited about worship become more occasional or rare or, or without the joy of worship. And again, it's not about, it's not about judging, but just, just about each of us saying, spiritually, where am I focused? I think one of the biggest things that keeps people from worship sometimes is a sense of hypocrisy if we're struggling nobody likes hypocrites and we don't like ourselves when we're hypocritical right and so sometimes if we're we're really struggling with some stuff and whether we can really put a finger on it or not we're struggling with some stuff spiritually and we don't want to be a hypocrite so so we kind of avoid close fellowship don't want to be a hypocrite. So instead of addressing the struggle, we address the hypocrisy, it seems. And the first thing to go is personal worship. Because how can you have anticipation of being with God when we haven't been doing what God spoke to us about the last couple of times we were in his word? So personal worship is sometimes the first to go. And then why would we want to gather with others to, to sing phrases and to share prayer requests when we know that that's not really authentically who we are now. But, so, so the issue is not that we have to be sinless to worship. Nobody is. But that we need times of worship and gathering together so that we can be encouraged in the battle. When you, when you think of the, the spiritual warfare and battle of, of Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, and you know, we need the Spirit, we need the truth, we need the gospel... And we need the Word of God, and we need prayer. And where do you get those things? We get those things as we gather together, and so we need to have our souls refreshed like this, around the Word of God. So we're encouraged to battle on. They celebrated the Passover, and, and if you went to the Second Chronicles, they, 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 they like to emphasize, the, chronicle, the chronicler likes to emphasize. This is the worship, and this is what's happening in the temple, and it was a great time. Well, did Josiah's spiritual sincerity in any way stop the, uh, the coming judgment of God? Jump to verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. This is a man you can, you can uh, imitate. There's just like nobody better spiritually than that. And we saw last week in, the, in, in part one of Josiah in chapter 22 that, in fact, God saw that and promised him personally that he would not see the coming judgment. Do you remember that in chapter 22, verse 19? God said, because, this is from, uh, from the prophetess, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke, you tore your robes, you wept, I've heard you, and in fact, I'll gather you to your fathers and you'll be buried in peace. So God's plan of judgment was still going to come, but it wouldn't come on Josiah personally. Nevertheless, now we're in chapter 23, verse 26, nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. That's his grandfather. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, There shall my name be. So judgment would still come, even though he sincerely obeyed. And in fact, it was long overdue. We saw last week the timeline that there had been some 800 years since Joshua had come into the land in the times of the judges and the times of the United Kingdom and the times of the divided kingdom. And through all of this, there were these cycles and seasons and centuries of returning to idolatry, coming back to God. Returning to idolatry, coming back to God. But now judgment must come. An important thing to notice that affirms the significance of And sincerity of Josiah, though, is this. Even though he knew judgment was coming, he went through with eradicating the false worship, renewing the covenant, and bringing about the spiritual reform and revival of the nation. when you think about it, when he knew from the prophetess that indeed God was going to judge the nation, and he would just barely escape, if you will, as he would die just before it happens, he could have shrugged at us, hey, Why bother? God's going to judge the nation. I'm kind of escaping by the skin of my teeth. Uh, God's going to judge the nation. Why would I try to purge the land? But here's the principle. God's leaders pursue him regardless of personal benefit. And why is that? Because they're thinking about all the people that they could influence in this last hour. Because, see, if you leap ahead in time, and because we have all the Scripture, we know this. We leap ahead in time because, yeah, next week we begin to see how the Babylonians come in and they're going to be taken captive. The people of Israel are going to be, Judah, are going to be taken captive to Babylon. But keep going forward in time and you get to the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 of Daniel, we meet four amazing young teenage men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know where they're from? from Judah they were some of the captives of Judah so they were the ones making the journey and their parents in particular would have been in Judah, in Jerusalem when Josiah was bringing about these reforms I'd like to think that the reason you have a godly Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is because Josiah led the nation and the nobility because it says even that Daniel and his friends were from the nobility of Judah. They're some of the, their parents were probably some of the elders who stood there with the king. Many godly people would go as captives to Judah, I mean to Babylon. And God had a plan for them. Remember, Jeremiah at that time says, I got a plan to bless you. And so go to Babylon, have families, follow the word of God, and I'm going to bring you back. And a later generation would include the Ezra and the Nehemiah and the Zerubbabel who would come back and rebuild the temple and would rebuild the walls. You see, God has a long-term plan. We're just, like I said, the tiny little piece of it. And he has a long-term plan. And so regardless of what we, we, we see happening all around us, that we cannot control. We are to stay spiritually focused on that which we can because we are influencing others around us regardless of, of, of how long we have, you know, freedom to even do this. It's your children. It's somebody else's children. And so if you can influence somebody else who's going to have the Daniel, then God is using you. I wish kind of, selfishly that this was the final scene of Josiah's life because we've learned three great principles. Be, to stay focused, to stay committed to God's word, need to eradicate, address those, the false worship, idolatry in our life. We need to pursue true worship. But the most important lesson maybe of, of his life to us is found actually in his failure. And that is to avoid Distractions. Avoid distractions. Verse 29. When Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. So, Egypt is going to be an ally of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him, Pharaoh Necho, in battle. But Nico faced him and killed him at Megiddo. This is where Josiah dies. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. What a, a sad ending to a good life. In fact, Josiah dies at the age of 39. What was he thinking? Why did he go pick a fight with Pharaoh, king of Egypt? He foolishly is trying to intervene in a geopolitical situation that God already knew all about, And in fact, God was working out his big plan. You see, over the last couple of months, whenever there was a a major threat to Israel or to Judah, it was coming from Assyria. Assyria was uh, the superpower of the day for so long, 150 or more years. But Assyria was declining, which is why they needed to uh, make an ally out of Egypt, because Babylon was rising. And Assyria had at one point controlled the area called Babylon but now Babylon was gaining uh, power and would become in fact the superpower. It looked something like this. Pharaoh Necho reigned in Egypt and he knows that Assyria needs help up here because of the threat of Babylon over here. And so Pharaoh Necho is going from Egypt up to fight with Assyria against Babylon. We know this from other biblical history as well as secular history. At Carchemish, by the Euphrates Rivers, as this this mentions. There'll be a battle at Hamath, uh, we know. But he's on his way to go there. And what Josiah does is he tries to cut off Egypt from going to help Assyria. He was warned not to do that. Second Chronicles, but Nico knew what Josiah was mobilizing to do. But Nico sent messengers to him, Josiah, saying, what quarrel is there, king of Judah, between you and me? It is not you I am attacking at this time, but the house with which I am at war, which is actually we know to be Babylon. God has told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me, or he will destroy you. This comes from the pagan king. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him in battle. Even after being warned, he would not listen. This is, the, this is the Chronicles statement. He would not listen to what God to what Nico had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. So you have to insert these verses right in the middle of verse 29. Josiah was warned... Don't get involved. It's a distraction. Josiah had an opinion, understandably. We understand that because we know just how bad Assyria had been to Israel, conquering the ten tribes and deporting them. We know that Assyria had been the major th- godless pagan threat against Judah. Remember, they took all those cities of Judah, surrounded uh, Jerusalem until God intervened and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. God can take care of the Assyrians, Josiah. But somehow, Josiah decided he needed to get involved. And he took the side of the Babylonians, which we understand because he hadn't really experienced anything bad from the Babylonians, but got Assyrians over here who are godless and pagan, you got Babylonians over here, which are godless and pagan. And in fact, it would be the Babylonians with whom he was siding who would come and take his sons captive. There really was no good side. Politically, though, he had his opinion. And this opinion about international geopolitics is what was his downfall. have to avoid distractions and uh, I know there's a lot of ways to, that we get distracted by many things common and uncommon and there are, there are important things that we care about but we have to remember the most important things that God cares about that we stay focused spiritually why did, why did Josiah do this? It doesn't state that it was pride, but what else could it be? That somehow he pictured himself at a time of strength as being some kind of a major political player that, that somehow he had to, God needed him to fix this. And so even after hearing the warning through this king, he went and did it, and it was a fatal distraction. He had done so well, led so well, spiritually modeled so well but what did him in was maybe a spiritual pride even if there's any pride that's most insidious it's when you're proud about where you're at spiritually let him who stands take heed lest he fall it was spiritual pride that Jesus always addressed in the Pharisees he was a strong spiritual leader and what he did here was so out of character with what we just read in verse 25 of following the Lord with his heart and strength and soul. But we have to be aware of, our, of the, the ability of our own heart in Satan's world to be distracted. So godly leaders must stay focused. At age 39, he stumbled and it killed him. What's distracting you from your best intentions, your your great desire is to walk with God. It's different for all. It can be those stresses, accomplishments, success, money, politics, personal sin, temptations, whatever distracts you. It's like driving. You know, you can be alert 99.9% of the time driving and you can die from that one time where you try to grab for your soda that was following or texting or arguing with somebody in the car. Today we learn four great lessons. The first three are from Josiah and why we will always remember him as a good and godly king but the fourth that we learned from him is maybe why he fell short of being a great king But all four lessons are teaching us how to stay focused, commit to God's word, address sin issues, pursue worship, and avoid anything that distracts us. You know, as we approach the end of our study of 2 Kings, Josiah really is the last good king of Judah. Who's the next good king of Judah? Jesus Christ will be the next one to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And he is that coming king, still coming. He's the Christ, the newborn king that we'll celebrate in this season. Let's stay focused on him. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would uh, uh, continue to help us be spiritually alert, watchful in prayer of our own heart, uh, aware of where uh, we can be uh, Distracted, where we can be caught in idolatry, where we can uh, be worshiping some form of self instead of you, uh, what Satan's attacks on us might be. Uh, Lord, help us to be people of the Word. Uh, we, coming, we keep coming back, O oh Father, to that same thing. And just as we see your people needed to keep coming back to your Word, there's nothing else. There's no other way we will know what you want for us to do except for to be immersed in your word. Help us to be of encouragement as we gather together as well to encourage each other to follow you through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.